We always have so many things to tell our audience about here at Intelligence Squared, so when I'm needing a top-down view of it all, I don't want to feel like I'm looking at organised chaos. That's why I really love Notion, which lays out different threads of work in a beautifully designed layout, and despite all of its clever AI tech going on in the background, it feels as clear and easy as putting pen to paper. Remember that? But with Notion, you can do a lot more than jot down a few thoughts. Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organize, and rediscover the joy of play. And thanks to its AI-powered model, the way it works is so intuitive, every question has an answer. I still love my paper notebook, but sitting next to Notion, it might need to up its game a little bit. Try Notion for free and up your game too when you go to notion.com slash squared. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com slash squared, lowercase. So you can start turning ideas into action. And when you use the link, you're supporting a Intelligence Squared 2. That's Notion.com slash squared. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, and welcome to Intelligence Squared, where great minds meet. I'm senior producer, Connor Boyle. Coming up, Gillian Tett. The FT columnist, anthropologist, and author who predicted the 2008 financial crash talks through the potential highs and lows for the economy in the year ahead. This is an event in collaboration with Ytree, who combine data, technology, and human experience to provide a layer of intelligence over your financial life. Find out more at y-tree.com. Joining Gillian on stage was BBC News presenter and royal correspondent Johnny Diamond in front of a live audience at London's Tabernacle Theatre. If you want to keep up with everything going on at Intelligence Squared, do sign up to the newsletter. Head over to intelligencesquared.com. Upcoming events include Nick Cave, Rory Stewart, Mary Beard, Robert Peston and Tortoise editor James Harding with more conversations on the way. Let's join Johnny Diamond now in conversation with Gillian Tett. Thank you very much and, and welcome to Intelligence Squared Economic Outlook in partnership with Ytree. I'm Johnny Diamond and I'm thrilled to introduce our guest. It's always a, a curiosity. You obviously all know who Gillian is, otherwise you wouldn't have bothered coming here tonight. But I'll run through just some of her achievements. She is a member of the FT's editorial board, of course, and a columnist for the Financial Times as well, the author of many books. Um, she is not only a political economist, but also a social anthropologist, the PhD from Cambridge in that topic, and is the first person to have won all three awards, Columnist, Journalist and Business Journalist of the Year Award at the British Press Awards. Uh, there's also a slew of awards in the US as well. And to top it all off, she has recently been elected the Provost of King's College, Cambridge. The format for this evening is that I will ask Gillian um, a spray of questions um, loosely hanging around the global economy, the UK economy, uh, and some of the events in the news that will have an impact on economic prospects. We'll talk, I'll, we'll talk for about 40 minutes, and then we'll open the floor to you uh, to put your questions. Um, those of you who are watching at home as well, you are able to 
put your questions to Gillian and they will come up on the handy iPad in front of me. Uh, you can put your questions by putting them into the chat tab on the right hand side of the screen and I'll get them up here and I will try and come to them. For audience members, uh, there will be, I think it's a couple of roving microphones to make sure that you are heard. But let's um, kick off, uh, if we can, um, with the global economy. Um, it's a ludicrously broad topic, but your thoughts as to where it stands in this rather delicate time at the moment, Gillian? Well, thank you very much indeed. I should start by saying thank you very much indeed to Intelligence Squared for hosting this. Um, it's great to be with you, Johnny. Um, I've been living in America for the last dozen years and have just recently, literally three weeks ago, taken up the role of Provost of King's College in Cambridge. So I feel a bit like a newbie back in the British scene and it's great to have you know, someone who's so central to it, like yourself, um, on stage with me. Um, if I'm asked traditionally what's gonna happen to the global economy, um, and I've worked at the FT now for 30 years, which makes me officially very old, according to my daughters. Um, but if I'm asked normally, you know, what's going to happen to the global economy? What I was trying to do as an economic journalist in the past was to go to the high pope of economics, um, which was the IMF, and look at what they say. And two weeks ago, they had their IMF annual meeting where they said... The baseline forecast is for global growth to slow from 3.5% in 2002 to 3% in 2023 and 2.9% in 2024, well below the historical average of 3.8%. They then go on to say that global inflation is forecast to decline steadily from 8.7% in 2022 to 6.9% in 2023. And they go on to say monetary policy actions and frameworks are key at the current juncture to keep inflation expectations anchored. Now at that point, half of you may be asleep. Um, but that is the way that traditionally um, economists and economic writers have looked at where the global economy is going. There are three things that are problematic with that right now. The first is that for most of the last 15 years, central banks have indeed been, if not the only game in town, then the main game in town in terms of shaping where interest rates were. That is now changing. And we may get really geeky later on and talk about what's happening to treasury yields and interest rates on other um, currencies. But the key point I would stress right now is that geopolitics is now supplanting central banks in terms of shaping what's happening to interest rates. The second point I'd make, which again, what I'm sure we'll come back to, is that because we're living through an era of very rapid technological change, and because the um, locus of economic activity and the drivers are shifting geographically, the statistics that we're using to capture what's happening in the economics world are often at best limited. Um, I mean, just today we saw the ONS in admit that its current unemployment data is very challenged. That is just a microcosm of what's happening right across the data measuring world or the economy measuring world. And the third point I'd make is that people like me who started their career as economic journalists, and I was for a number of years, the, I worked in the economics team at the FT, 
we were kind of trained to look at the world through a set of intellectual tools that were developed in the 20th century, which were basically economic models and balance sheets. And we assumed that if we had those tools, they were basically like compasses. They kind of told us which way we were going and what the future would be. Um, that was always a bit of a conceit. They came into fashion in the late 20th century because computing power gave the impression that these tools based on maths were more powerful than ever. The real story of the last decade is that what has started to matter with all of our traditional tools, like economic models, is not so much what's in the tools, but what you've left out. Because any model is only as good as the parameters you put into that model. And the story of the last decade is that almost everything that has been traditionally left out of the models, like medical risk, pandemics, which economists were not incorporating two decades ago, like environmental risk, which was as be at best a footnote, like technological change, like social upheaval, like what they call cutely geopolitical stress, better known as war, all of those issues, which were outside the models traditionally, have now become more important than what's actually in the model. And so as we look forward, we're gonna to have to be very careful about how we use a lot of the traditional tools going forward. So the IMS outlook is actually pretty darn boring. You know, we've gone from 3.5 to 3 to 2.9, as opposed to 3.8. The average person would go, well, what? You know, who minds? And for the UK, by the way, they've gone from upgrading it from a slight recession to a very low pace of growth. But in practical terms, trying to work out where we're going is no longer found just in the numbers that the IMF has tracked traditionally. Is, is, is the idea of a, a global economy um, akin to that sort of fantasy of the international community? I mean, is it a useful um, set of, uh, of statistics? I mean, given the you know, a rate of growth of say 3%, Britain would be delighted to have a rate of growth of 3%. China would be bitterly disappointed to have a rate of growth of 3%. What does it mean? Well, obviously, one of the things the IMF report stressed is that there are very big divergences. And one of the great unexpected stories of the last year is that the US has outperformed all expectations. Um, and Europe has, as usual, kind of muddled along. Um, the UK has been the worst performing G7 economy. Um, and China has not been dazzling at all. And China has big economic challenges ahead. So yes, on one level, the idea of there being a common global economy is ridiculous. But on the other level, one of the things that's fascinating today is that even at a time when globalization is under um, attack rhetorically, and it's under attack in practical terms because of rising protectionism, and geopolitical stress. Um, what you've also got though, is a global economy that remains very interconnected, both through supply chains and through the internet and through financial markets to quite a remarkable degree. And to give a tiny illustration of this, um, in the last 30 years, there's been an explosion of what people call global value chains, which basically was America and Europe buying goods from Chinese factories. And one of the remarkable things that happened two weeks ago at the meeting of the IMF in Marrakesh 
was that for the first time ever, the IMF modeled in great detail what would happen if the world was to break apart into two blocks in a new Cold War scenario, which didn't trade with each other anymore. Um, and it used, by way of you know, mental exercise, the voting blocks at the United Nations during the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And what it found was that you would cut global growth by seven percentage points um, on a baseline scenario, or possibly up to 12 um, percentage points by those global value chains falling apart. Now, I don't think it's gonna happen, but it indicates the degree to which we do actually have an interconnected system still. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared and to create each one we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent but behind the scenes there's also a producer, a production team and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Let's get down to some brass tacks if we can on, on well, in particular, the UK economy, but also, I suppose, the um, uh, European Union. I love well. the word brass tacks, by the way. One of the big challenges <laughs> moving back from America, being here, is reminding myself of all these phrases which are totally normal in the UK and mean nothing to anybody else. Yeah, I know. Do you know some <laughs> um, separated by that? American. As far as American, he's working around Cambridge going, they said what? What? I know, I know. <laughs> exactly. So brass tacks is certainly a very British, no, British phrase. I remember searching for nappies in Washington, D.C. and being caught with a blank stare from nearly yeah. every pharmacy. Um, uh, the inflation rate has fallen fairly sharply in Britain, um, uh, and it may well be that Prime Minister manages to hit his target. It is said, however, that getting it the next stage, getting it down to 4 3 2%, the Bank of England target, is going to be much, much harder. What are your thoughts about UK inflation and then perhaps European inflation? Well, the fact that the UK still has an inflation rate of, what, 6 7% yeah. is hardly encouraging at all. 
And the fact that anyone thinks that's good news shows just how dreadful it was last year. So that's the first point to make. Um, the real challenge of inflation right now, in my view, is that uh, who in the audience, I should check this first, how many people in the audience have studied economics or consider themselves to be an economist? Go on, okay. be brave. All right, yeah, it's so actually science. quite a lot of you, okay. But okay, bad. so when I start talking about demand, demand cycles and supply cycles, um, most of central banking and most economic analysis of inflation for the last you know, few decades has been based primarily on a vision about demand cycles. And central banks were driven by this idea that if you raise rates and crush, crush demand, then inflation goes down. And if you, you know, lower rates, inflation goes up because demand goes up. Um, the problem with what's happened in the last few years is that starting with COVID, that wasn't a demand issue, that was a supply issue. The production of goods, the provision of services was what was basically fluctuating. Um, and central bankers have no tools to deal with supply side problems. And historically, they haven't analyzed them much either. And people thought, well, it's just COVID. And then you lurch into Russia's brutal invasion of Ukraine, and suddenly you have a new set of supply shocks. And then you start talking about China and protectionism and reordering of supply chains. And that's a new set of supply shocks. Um, and so I'm in the camp of those who think that much of what's going on right now is actually about supply shocks, which we don't have the tools to really analyze, predict, or to control. Um, if it comes to the 2% target, which you know, there's, that is what central banks still claim that they're chasing, um, central banks are in a horrific situation right now. I think personally, it would be extremely hard to bring inflation down to their target without raising rates to a point where they crush demand so dramatically that it sparks, if not an economic depression, then a political reaction. Um, and in fact, you know, in the last 48 hours, um, data has come out from the Fed and others which show that if you use the Fed, if you look, use what's called the Taylor Rule models um, as to what level of rates you'd have to have to basically bring US inflation down to 2%. Remember, US inflation right now is running at 3.7%. So you're only talking about a 1.7 um, you know, percentage point difference of bringing it down. To do that, you'd have to raise rates from 525 to 7%. So I know this is dead geeky for those of you who aren't economists, but um, if you imagine that in the UK context, you're probably talking about even higher. Yeah. Do you really think anybody is going to cheer that on at all, apart from a few pensioners who are living off their savings and hoping that the savings rates goes up with that? And the challenge with central banks right now is that they either tacitly say, we're going to ignore 2%, and that's kind of what's happening right now. It's one reason, again, why the yields are going up, or they basically crush growth and keep jacking up rates for a long time. But, you know, I'm not, and the last thing I'll say on oil and what the Middle East issue is doing right now, um, you know, the one reason why markets have been on edge is because when the last time we had a full-blown Middle East crisis, um, you know, that led to the oil shock of 1973, and essentially you had a tripling of oil prices in a very short space of time that sparked an inflationary spiral and a wage inflation spiral. And that's obviously what people are scared about. Now, the good news is that that's very unlikely to happen like 50 years ago, because um, the intensity of oil usage has changed radically. Today, we get 3.5 times more growth out of one barrel of oil 
than we did 50 years ago because we're much more efficient in how we use oil and we have different sources of energy, renewables, etc. So it's not as bad as it was 50 years ago, but it's still very hard to see inflation falling in a world where petrol prices are going up. If inflation is not falling, even if the Bank of England sort of tacitly lets the 2% target slip, it certainly can't let interest rates fall. You're suggesting that interest rates are going to stay in the UK at this level for a considerable length of time. I'm suggesting they have a very, very nasty choice to make. Um, Andy Haldane, who was previously chief economist at the Bank of England um, and is writing columns for the FT, he suggested, for example, that what the central bank should do is simply say they're going to take a holiday from the 2% target for a period of time and just um, essentially ignore it and potentially, if not keep rates stable, then cut them to keep growth high. Um, I think there are many, many people out there who would agree right now. Um, but the problem is that for the central banks to do that, they're terrified that if they admit in public they're backing away from 2% at all, then basically, you know, the markets will lose all confidence in what they're doing. And you'll get a very nasty reaction that basically drives up market rates separately from policy rates. It's worth stressing just to, you know, again, um, and apologies to those of you who are economists um, for whom this is so obvious. Um, but I've learned in writing articles for the FT over the years that we have to always write as if our mother's reading it. And, you know, the mother doesn't know anything about ec economics. That's kind of theory or the father. Um, but, um, you know, there's two ways you can judge interest rates. There's the official rate set by the Bank of England and there's the rate set in the markets by investors. They sort of move in tandem, but not always. And one thing that's happened recently is that the rate set in the market by investors has shot up at the long end, i.e. for 10 years, because people think that either the central banks are going to have to raise rates in the future or inflation is going to be high, or they think that no one's going to want to buy those bonds because people don't trust the government. So, I mean, look, you, you, you clearly think the Bank okay. of England is in a horrible position, yeah. but you would be very surprised to see interest rates fall. I'd be very surprised. I think they're going to play for time and sit on their hands for a while and yeah. pray for a miracle. Excellent news. Probably sums up, probably sums up Rishi Sunak's approach as well. Um, uh, can we talk a bit about growth? Um, if there is the prospect of, of significant growth or any growth in the UK economy and, and how you see the differences between, you touched on it, between um, the European economy or the European economies and the US economy? Um, is, there, is there potential for growth in the UK economy? Absolutely, of course there is. Um, and there are sectors of the UK economy which are you know, quite encouraging right now. Um, you know, one of the problems, though, of course, is the high rates. Another problem is the falling productivity. Um, and another problem is, you know, the fact the UK has a lot of debt. And then on top of that, you have this little thing called Brexit, which I know is wildly controversial. Um, and I don't want to get too derailed by that. But the reality is that I think the impact of Brexit was concealed for quite a long time by COVID and the fact that all the other supply chains were basically being reconfigured and we were dealing with other shocks. Um, for me, the really big question in the future of the UK is in a world where we're no longer a convenient, you know, quasi offshore entry point for the European market, what exactly do we have as a USP, as an advantage? Um, you know, what exactly is going to be the strength of the British economy? Um, and that's, you know, one question I have going forward. In terms of the Europe versus the US, um, you know, why has Europe underperformed? 
um, where it's not just a recent thing, it's been underperforming for years, one of the most shocking statistics that I'd urge anyone to look at if they have time on their hands or are a paid up nerd like me, um, is the companies which dominate the um, league table of the top 100 companies in the world. And the number of those that are American is shocking. Um, and the degree to which that has expanded in the last 10 years is shocking. And Britain is barely nowhere, anywhere. You know, Europe is barely anywhere. And, you know, the US economy is an absolute motor right now of innovation and, and you know, onshoring, manufacturing revival, you know, the IRA, all of those things are really driving a lot of growth in the US. Plus, um, they arguably tackled their banking problems quicker um, after the 2007 um, crisis. Um, you know, plus they have, for the most part, you know, a more supportive fiscal stance right now. Let's skip on to, you, you, you touched on, on the sort of tech powerhouse that is the US economy, and that will lead a lot of people to think about artificial intelligence and the challenges and the opportunities. There's a fair amount of fear around. Um, there must be a fair amount of, uh, a fair number of people also thinking that this could revolutionize productivity in some sectors. Um, can I just talk about the relationship between government and, and, and business and where they meet when it comes to AI and, and whether you think governments understand AI in the same way that businesses do? Well, where they're going to meet physically next week is Bletchley Park. Indeed. Um, because, of course, you know, they're having the UK AI Summit. Um, although, actually, there won't be, you know, there, there'll be quite a lot of tech representation there, um, but not across the board. One of the very odd things about next week's summit is you have the big tech companies represented big time, but actually very few of the British um, AI companies represented there. So that's another oddity. Mm. But it indicates, you know, how the global engines of growth are developing right now. Um, you know, if you ask me what can government do about AI, um, you know, one of the problems is that the, what's happened in the AI sphere in the last year, which is really a shift from what people call symbolic systems of AI, which write, co write code and rules about how AI is going to operate preemptively, as opposed to statistical systems of AI, like ChatGPT, um, or, you know, based on neural um, natural language processing models, which essentially operate not by pre-writing code, but by essentially mimicking humans by absorb observing them on massive scale. That shift has been driven by about 200 people. So there's about 200 people who are really the key players in this space right now, in the West. I'm leaving outside China. Yeah. Um, as it happens, the UK has played a key role in actually generating some of those 200 people. Someone like Jeff Hinton, who was at King's um, in Cambridge, you know, is called the godfather of AI. He'd been critical to Google's development in that field. Someone like Demis Hasebis, um, who created DeepMind, again, is critical. So you've got quite a few Brits in there, although a lot of them have migrated to the US. Um, but it's literally only 200 people. And and by the way, their salaries are going up through the roof right now, unsurprisingly. <laughs> um, and there's really only four companies that are driving the base systems, not the applications, but the base systems. Um, and that means that those people understand it and almost nobody else does. There's a huge gap in understanding. And there's almost no one in Congress who has the foggiest idea how these systems really work. 
Um, Congress in 2016 had more talk show radio hosts than it had scientists in Congress. True fact, mm. and scientists in America were so horrified by that fact that they actually went out and created a political action group to recruit more scientists to get involved in politics. Um, to my knowledge, the UK doesn't even have a political action group. And I don't know how many scientists there are in the House of Parliament, but I bet my bottom dollar there aren't that many. Um, and that's a problem. So do I trust governments to regulate it? No. Do I trust um, the AI companies themselves to regulate it? Probably no, not either. But it's going to need some kind of regulation and control going forward, because if not, that's quite scary. Because I think it was Jeff Hinton who, who, who raised the flag just a couple of months ago, saying <laughs> essentially, alarm, alarm. Yeah, I mean, if any of you have got you know, time on your hands to spare and want to understand this, um, Jeff Hinton gave a brilliant interview at King's, actually, on this issue, where he expressed his concerns not just about the bigger existential risks that the machines might go mad and take over the world and kill us all, but actually the very immediate risks that, you know, in the 2024 election, we may have an absolute proliferation of deep fakes and manipulation that way. Um, and that's going to be a top topic of discussion next week in Bletchley Park. Um, and there are things you can do about that. I mean, I was with Yuval Hariri today, um, the author of Sapiens, you know, who comes out with some really good, sensible ideas like... You know, you could use a lot of existing legislation to try and control AI. Counterfeiting, that's really well established in the financial sphere. Mm. You can't counterfeit money. You could very easily, and this is Hariri's idea, Yuval's idea, um, you could very easily apply that to the AI sector and say you can't counterfeit humans. You can't create fake, fake bots or you will go to jail. You don't need new laws. You just take the ones from the financial world and apply them into the um, you know, tech sector. You could use, um, you know, issues around watermarking and require content to be watermarked. They'd, they've talked about that already, and I think probably next week they'll come out with something on that um, to mean that people can check whether the provenance is real or not. So the things you can do around all of that, you know, quite immediately, um, which would be, you know, at least progress. But the big question is, um, you know, how are you going to stop the incipient capabilities that are emerging? So aside from Jeff Hinton's video, um, Tristan Harris, who is one of the West Coast techies who has spent the last decade walking, warning about social media, he was previously at Google designing social media apps. He's now produced a fantastic video that explains what's going on in AI and why some of it's quite so dangerous. The thing I would stress though is I'm not in the camp of people who say it's all doom and disaster at mm. all, because just being in Kings in Cambridge in the last three weeks, I mean, it is stunning what AI is doing for research in terms of biology, biological research. I mean, absolutely unimaginable leaps in research capabilities in terms of neuroscience, in terms of biology, in terms of engineering. I mean, the way that people at Cambridge, and I'm dare say the other universities as well, are using AI, AI tools for positive research benefits right now would blow your mind. So that's a good side, and we have to find out a way to harness that in a positive way. Let's talk, if we could, about the year ahead. We, the, the, um, the evening is called Economic Outlook. Um, yeah, sorry, I'll stop. No, 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 not at all. Not at all. It's, it's good to wander now and then. I should say, we're coming, we've got about 10 minutes more of, of my questions, and then we'll come to you and to those of you who are watching and listening at home. Uh, just to remember, you can 
uh, put questions in through the, uh, the tab on the right-hand side, and I will, they'll come up here. So do think up your questions for Gillian uh, about 10 minutes until then. And also, if you want to tweet about this, it is hashtag IQ2. Um, just the, um, the look-ahead element. Um, the word polycrisis is, is now thrown around uh, with, with uh, gay abandon. Um, when you look at the, the challenges for uh, Western economies, I suppose we're talking about Europe and, and, and America and Britain most of all, what, what, are, what are the key challenges for you? Well, the key challenge basically is the range of outcomes in the next two or three years, to put it crudely. Um, in that we're dealing with volatility in every possible sense. It's not just, you know, normally when people say volatility, what they mean is some weird part of the financial markets has a price that's going up and down very dramatically, and everyone normal can ignore that. Um, today, volatility means, yes, financial markets are incredibly volatile. Um, for those of you in finance, what's happened in the treasuries market, which is supposed to be dull as ditch water and really boring and stable, you know, is hugely volatile and pretty shocking. Um, you know, I fully expect equity markets to be hyper volatile. One of the things that's happened in the stock market in the US in the last um, few years is that the so-called big seven, which are tech companies, have come to dominate everything. And they're driving almost all the growth upwards in stocks. And if anyone, any, anything causes faith in those big tech companies to crumble, that would be pretty devastating for the stock market as a whole. But um, it's not just economic, you know, stock market volatility. It's volatility in inflation, prices going up and down. It's volatility in politics. Yeah. It's volatility in environmental events. It's volatility in geopolitics. And we're dealing with extreme uncertainty on many, many fields. And in some ways, that is not unusual. Because if you widen the lens beyond the last 50 years when most of us grew up, you know, extreme volatility and uncertainty was kind of the normal human condition much of the time. It's kind of a conceit that in the last 40, 50 years, we came to assume that it was normal to plan forward for 100 years and price a bond off of a 100-year horizon. And it was normal to create this lovely economic model telling you exactly what's going to happen. And it was a normal for the IMF to come up with these forecasts that the media all faithfully reported as if that was gospel. You know, that's not normal by the standards of human history. Um, and, you know, humans have always found ways to thrive and prosper in very volatile, uncertain times. Um, but for this generation, our generation, that are used to treating our models as compasses that were pretty much infallible, it's come as a big shock. So your advice is sort of hang on. No. Well, no, my advice is this. It's very simple. Um, I'm not saying throw your models away. I'm not th saying throw your balance sheet away. You know, if you're walking through a dark wood at night with a compass, you do not want to throw away your compass. But if you walk through a dark wood at night and you just stare at the compass dial looking down all the time, then you're going to walk into a tree, even if you're going in the right direction. And right now, if you're using your models, your balance sheets, or even, frankly, your opinion polls, and you're not looking up around you at all the stuff that's been left out of the model, then you're going to end up in, with nasty shocks. We touched on supply chains and globalization earlier. And, and I think it was about a month ago, The Economist magazine ran, ran a cover talking about what homeland economics is, as it described it. Um, not quite the end of globalization. 
but um, certainly a much bigger role for government when it came to the regulation of business, the direction of business, the pump priming of business. Did you do you buy it? Do you see that as a, a broad picture across the world and across perhaps those bits of the world where government for the last 20 or 30 years has had a lighter touch? Um, I think that basically there's a wider cognitive shift going on. Um, I went to the World Economic Forum in Davos for the first time in 2007. And I joked back then that Davos man, and it was 81% Davos man, you know, 90% Davos woman at the time, um, was basically driven by a sort of, again, this is my anthropology background, you know, they had an intellectual framework and, you know, a cognitive map, which was basically driven by three core ideas that they took for granted so, so thoroughly, they never even bothered to state them really or question them. You know, it, this was the holy trinity of the Davos religion, if you like. And one of them was globalization, one was free market economics, and one was democracy. And Davos man assumed that all three were self-evidently good and that all three would self-evidently keep spreading across the world and that history basically went in one direction in the, in the direction of progress. And what's happened since 2007 is that all three of those have cumulatively come under attack. So democracy, you know, it's obvious what's happened there. Um, the Bertelsmann does an amazing survey which shows each year how many countries are democratic or not democratic. And for the first time ever, um, since 2004, the index has, now has more autocracies and democracies across the world. Um, in terms of free market economics, Starting in 2007-8, governments intervened massively in the financial sector. Then they intervened in money markets and, and the financial system through quantitative easing. Then with COVID, they intervened all over the place with healthcare systems and everything else and supply chains. With the Russian invasion of Ukraine, they started intervening yet again in all kinds of energy markets. And the cumulative effect of that is that the idea of government intervention has become normalized in a way that was unimaginable three decades ago. And so even in America, which likes to say that it's a land of the free or free markets, you know, you now have Bidenomics and open discussion of industrial policy that is embraced not just by the left, but by the right as well in the interest of national security. So you really have a, you know, a leap backwards to a kind of almost wartime footing mentality and how people are talking about the economy. And on globalization, again, you've had this fragmentation, not just in terms of protectionism exploding, um, you had financial fragmentation after 2007. But if you look at the four measures of globalization, which the DHL index tracks, which is the main globalization index, which are basically movement of people, goods, money, and ideas, you know, collectively, they haven't gone into any significant reverse, but they've slowed down. Um, you know, even the internet, the movement of ideas is coming under attack because of the rise of the splinternet and yeah. the, you know, systems there. So you're seeing localization come up um, in its place, but it's not nearly as dramatic as the headlines would suggest. And in some areas, globalization is still alive and well, particularly the movement of ideas. And that's actually sparking more crises and solving them right now. Very quick personal question. When you look back on that first Davos that you went to, um, and you look back at it from, from where you are now, are you surprised by the direction of travel? Are you personally surprised by it? 
Um, yes and no. You know, I have made numerous mistakes over the years, um, partly because I was somebody who, you know, has been part of the globalized elite, you know, at times, you know, whizzing around and stuff. And I was one of those who could not believe that Brexit vote would go the way it did. And that was my own ignorance and laziness and lack of my one-on-one -on -one anthropology um, in terms of trying to think myself into the mentality of people who were different from me. Um, and that was a real wake-up call to me. Um, you know, so I was surprised by that. And yes, on one level, I have been surprised by, or saddened, deeply saddened, by the crumbling of that holy trinity that I joke about. Because, you know, the reality is I happen to personally believe that, free, you know, free markets and globalization and democracy are very good things. But I'm actually one of those people who doesn't believe or has never thought for many years that history only went in one direction because I did my PhD as an anthropologist in the former Soviet Union. And I did my work actually there when it was still the Soviet Union. And my entire PhD was predicated on the assumption that the Soviet Union would continue mm -hmm. because my entire PhD topic was looking at the interaction between the Soviet system and in my case, Tajik um, village um, systems um, in Tajikistan. So that was my whole PhD program. Never occurred to me in 1989, the Soviet Union would collapse. And didn't occur to anyone I, know, I knew who was living and I was you know, living amongst in my PhD program. When it collapsed and almost overnight, Tajikistan went backwards in history in almost every possible way from, to take the simplest way, the marriage age for girls went from being really quite high to collapsing almost overnight. That for me showed me two things. Firstly, history can go backwards sometimes and systems that seem very robust on the outside can sometimes be much more fragile than you realize. And the only thing that was more shocking than that experience was coming back to the West later and realizing that my way that I looked at events and systems and structures, which by the way, is the same way that anyone who lived in the former Soviet Union also instinctively has embedded in their hearts, or someone who's lived in the Middle East, by the way, um, realizing that the vast majority of people I met in England and America did not have that view at all because they'd only ever lived in a world where progress seemed to be going in one direction. And in some ways, what's happened in the last couple of years is that the West has simply caught up with where the rest of humanity's been for a very long time. Brilliant, thank you very much indeed. That is really enough from me. I want to hear, if we can, from you in the audience here and also at home. We have one question that's already come in from at home and the lights thankfully have gone up. So if I can see your hands, first of all, uh, I'm gonna give the gentleman in the front row here. I'm gonna take two questions at a time if I can. Have we got two microphones? We've got one microphone, forgive me. Got two microphones. So if we've got anyone on, the, on this side, you're, you're the lucky people who wants to ask a question. We've got Sir, if you would, and this gentleman here. So first of all, you, Sir, if you would, and then I'll take two questions at a time, and then gentleman here as well up at the front. Sir. Um, Gillian, thank you for your updates. You may recall when you and I first met, the key theme and discussion was about the curse of the silo mentality. Mm -hmm. Now, how do you think that has progressed over the last 10 years? Is it still a very key issue? You know, I lived 35 years in East Asia, and there are more silos there than here, but it is a global issue. 
and you talked about globalization and integration, what more can we do to build teamwork and have real collaboration um, in overcoming the silo mentality? Thank you, sir. And we had a question up the front here, sir. To know to what extent you subscribe to the Ray Dalio view of the, the new world order. <laughs> okay. Um, all right. Two massive questions. Right. So let me de um, translate both of those for the wider audience. Ray Dalio is the founder of Bridgewater, um, you know, a massive hedge fund that has been very successful for many parts of its existence. Um, he, to my mind, is a fascinating bellwether of how things are changing. Because when I first met Ray in 2008, he had done a truly brilliant job of forecasting the financial crisis by looking very, very geekily at capital flows and inflation and debt and all the things that economists are used to studying incessantly. Um, and so he was basically a paid up model man who looked at all the economic numbers and had done brilliantly well. Now, what is fascinating about Ray Dalio is that in the last decade, he has, perhaps more than anybody else, dramatically swerved. And these days, what he spends as much time looking at is non-quantitative issues, looking at history and culture and sociology, and they're hiring teams of people to look at all these slippery stuff outside the models. And that analysis has really led him to make two important conclusions. Um, one is that he thinks that there is a rising chance of a global war. And that he now, actually, in fact, says there's a 50% probability of a global hot war, up from 35% two years ago. I mean, how the hell he gets these probabilities, who knows? But the point is, it's rising. And that's the first point to make, which is scary. However, it's really important to stress that his definition of war comes in five parts. Um, he thinks, you know, there's a trade war, a tech war, a cyber war, a capital war, and a shooting war. What I call slightly cynically, TTCCS. And if you look at US-China right now, US-China already gone through the trade war, the tech war, the um, cyber war. They're flirting with the capital war aspect too. And thank God they haven't gone to a shooting war. Um, so it's important to say, you know, be clear about what you mean when you say war. But his point is that the rods are rising and it's alarming. The other thing that's very interesting though about Ray, in some ways a more interesting thing, is that he thinks that the US is so ridden by social conflict because of income inequality. You might say that's kind of ironic coming from billionaire, but there we go. Um, but he, as a billionaire, is deeply concerned about rising income inequality. Um, and by the way, I should say many of the billionaires I've spoken to are also deeply concerned about this. Um, and um, he thinks actually there's a risk of rising risk of civil war inside America. Now, he could be wrong but it's certainly a very interesting straw in the wind. In terms of silos, I mean, I wrote a book, my second to last book was called The Silo Effect, about how people are very fragmented um, and can't do joined up thinking, um, both structurally inside organizations where you have different departments that kind of hate each other and don't collaborate, and mentally because we divide the world up into different boxes mentally and we have tunnel vision. Um, 
Is that changing? Um, in a nutshell, not really. In some fields, yes, but um, not really, not fast enough. Um, there are two aspects of that that worry me right now. Um, one is that we were given the illusion that the internet would break down silos, and it can do brilliantly if we mindfully use it for that purpose. But what happens when people go online most of the time is that they get stuck into cyber tribes and they become more tribal, not less tribal than they do in real life. Um, the other thing that worries me is that the problem with creating silos is that people create silos based on a situation that exists at one moment in time. So you might say, we need to deal with banking right now because the banks are blowing up. Let's create a silo of banking regulators on top of banks. And if the world outside moves faster than you can reorganize your bureaucracy, then your silos inside an organization are out of kilter with what's actually needed in terms of the challenges. So to give an example that you asked about to do with AI, right now there's a really big problem in finance in that AI potentially will transform many aspects of finance. It's changing things very fast. Right now, AI, if it's regulated at all, is regulated by IT regulators, not by central banks. And you have a silo problem again, and they can't communicate, and they're not reorganizing themselves fast enough to keep up with the world outside the institution. So. Thank you very much. Um, you will have heard um, Gillian refer to Davos man with a slight curling of her lip. I, I think yeah, we probably no, no. want to hear from Tabernacle Woman as well <laughs> at some point. Um, so I want, I want to come to the audience in a moment. We have one question that's come from uh, our online uh, group, which is what would a second Trump presidency do to the global economy? Easy one for you there. <laughs> Um, well, by a happy coincidence, I was with Kevin Hassett last week, who was a former chief economic advisor under Trump. Um, and he and I had a rather strong dis difference in views over this issue. Um, first point to make is that a Trump, second Trump presidency is entirely possible. Um, you know, barring a legal development, um, you know, it may be, is it possible that the courts will knock Trump out? Entirely possible. Um, but if they don't, it's really quite likely that he will end up being the Republican candidate. Um, point one. And if there was an election tomorrow, it's basically 50-50 as to who would win. Because if Joe Biden's running, um, I personally think he's a pretty bad candidate. Mm. Others disagree. And I'm not in any way um, attacking his record to date, which I think has been very impressive. But I don't think he's a particularly impressive candidate for the next four years. So if they're running today, it probably would be 50-50. And that's what the polls show. Um, but there's so much to play for between now and then. It's almost meaningless to make these pr predictions and possibilities. But what if Trump comes in, um, I think it could be a lot worse than first time. Because firstly, Trump will be hellbound on revenge. Um, that he's already, his team have combed through in great detail the Constitution to find clauses that would allow them to fire bureaucrats who have stood up to them in the past or disagreed with them. And I think there really would be a wholesale gutting of many parts of the bureaucracy, and that's very alarming. Um, secondly, I think that you will get um, a number of the people who served in the last administration will not return. And by that, I mean, last, when Trump came in last time, 
you know, there were crazies with him, but there were also people who, even if you didn't agree with their politics, were, had enough experience to be pretty um, credible. These were the so-called grown-ups in the, the room. The grown-ups. So you yeah. had, on the military side, a bunch of really very deeply committed public servants who were determined to keep the show on the road no matter what. And I knew a number of them pretty well um, and really did their very best to keep the show on the road. Um, and you also had people who'd come from Wall Street who knew how to add up and were in charge of you know, the economy and stuff like that. And you had Steve Mnuchin, who probably was the least, least likely treasury secretary in the history of treasury secretaries, but also knew how to add up and turned out to be actually a very savvy operator. And Trump basically gave Mnuchin pretty much free reign to do whatever he want in all the areas that kind of bored Trump and he wasn't interested in. And those areas were basically the CFTC, the SEC, the, you know, the Fed and the Treasury Department. So that was pretty much ring fence from what Trump was interested in. Um, I'm told that Mnuchin would come back. Who knows? But a number of the people who were there last time won't come back. And the third reason why it's so alarming is because if he does come back this time around, he's coming back into a world which is much more dangerous geopolitically and where many of the people that Trump have, you know, cuddled up to in the past appear hell-bent on wrecking damage on the West and where there's, you know, already a huge amount of turbulence. And how NATO and Europe respond will be very interesting to see, but I know that there is an enormous amount of scenario planning going on right now, um, not just amongst the European governments and kind of break glass in case of emergency policies, but also, frankly, amongst parts of the American um, intelligence and security apparatus about how to protect things in the future. Thank you. Let's go to the audience. I'm looking for Tabernacle Woman. I can see one Tabernacle Woman over there, middle of the sort of middle row, if we can get the microphone. And yes, and lady just there. I'm going to be out. I think she gets a question just for keenness. <laughs> She's been waving, practically dancing. Lady there, about four in, if you can pass the microphone to her. But first of all, madam, you, if you would. Thank you. Um, just picking up on your wonderful point about the compass and the dark wood, I just wonder if you'd comment on how economists have embraced the threat of the climate crisis in their thinking and whether that's changing and, and how do you forecast um, the impacts of climate getting into economic thinking? Yeah, I mean... Oh, so just one second, if we could, but second question, if we could as well. Sorry, madam. Um, I work for a development finance institution, and I'm from Myanmar, and I'm curious to know, what is your take on sanctions, given everything you've discussed in the world's context today? Wow, okay. Thank you, um, Thank you very much indeed. If we start... Okay, economics. You know, I've been critical of the economics profession in the past, um, particularly in the run-up to 2007. Um, I give them huge credit for embracing behavioral finance in parts of the economic profession and for increasingly widening their lens. Can you, sorry, can you explain behavioral finance for those that don't, or behavioral economics that don't? Basically, behavioral economics is, you know, traditionally, not traditionally, until, you know, 2005, much of economics is predicated on the idea of rational man or rational person who behaved like a robot and was consistent and rational um, and had perfect economic knowledge, which is clearly baloney. Um, and obviously psychology and culture and sociology and anthropology affects how economies behave. You know, it's like, it's, it's so obvious you feel like going, duh. Um, but that was kind of very much ignored previously. Um, behavioral finance um, makes the, you know, very obvious 
but often no point that you need to look at how humans actually behave and their cognitive processes to understand how markets work and how economies work. And that's really risen since 2007. So that's good. And also kudos to the economic profession for taking on board the environment, trying to grapple with difficult questions like what happens if you try and measure the impact of all our free services on the internet into consumption, things like that. So the economists know that things need to change. Not enough of them are moving fast enough to do that. But the IMF, for example, now spends a huge amount of time thinking about non-traditional issues as well. So it's happening, but not fast enough. Um, and in terms of sanctions, oh goodness, huge, huge, huge issue. Um, you know, the reality is that in the past, sanctions have sometimes worked. Um, you know, in the case of Ukraine's invasion, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, um, you know, I think there absolutely was an overwhelming moral case for sanctions. Um, they haven't worked particularly well because, you know, there's been a lot of sanction dodging um, by third countries. Um, you know, Greek ship owners should hang their heads in shame for how they were transporting oil, even as the EU was trying to clamp down on that. Um, and they've now sold a whole bunch of their ships to the Russians, which is, you know, just as bad. Um, but I do think sanctions have helped some of the signaling. Um, and I do think that they remain a tool that needs to be used on occasion. The problem though, is that if the world is, the, is splitting into a Cold War order, and if the dollar is being challenged, which is not yet, but if it does get more challenged, they'll get harder to implement going forward. Can I just pick you up on that point about the dollar? Because we've, we've seen um, the, the massive sort of sanctions creep through the financial system really since 2001. Yeah. Um, and virtually every year someone says, you know, look, at some point they'll work out a, a way to circumvent dollar-based sanctions. Uh, do you sense a tipping point? Do you sense a changing point? Or is it still very difficult to trade without the dollar? Um, it's still very difficult to trade without the dollar. And if you look at the um, usage of dollar internationally, and there are several key metrics, one is, you know, central bank reserves. And on that metric, actually, there is sign of diversification among some countries away from the dollar. So Russia and China, unsurprisingly, um, are, have diversified a lot. A lot of the non-Western countries are diversifying, point one. But not dramatically, but they are diversifying. If you look at the capital markets, where are people actually raising money and trading? There's absolutely no evidence whatsoever that the dollar has lost its preeminent role. Um, you know, the great disappointment has been the Eurozone, um, and that's because there isn't really a depth of single European debt to make the Eurozone, you know, really vibrant. Um, if you look at trade invoicing, i.e. what do you actually use when you sell goods, um, what you're seeing is a small, modest switch away from the dollar um, as particularly south-to-south -south trade starts to get invoiced on occasion in other cur currencies, particularly the Chinese um, renminbi. But again, it's very slow and very small. And there's this concept of dollar stickiness, which is once you've started invoicing in one currency, it's quite hard to stick, shift, which again, doesn't, hasn't changed a lot. But what you are getting is a growing attempts to try and break the dollar. And whether it's through you know, the Chinese saying they want to build up their currency markets, which doesn't look like it's going to happen soon because of the problems in the Chinese financial system, whether it's because you've got the Russians trying to create an alternative to the payments messaging processing that dominates in the West. Again, I won't get too technical about this. 
or whether it's through the um, central bank digital currencies, there's definitely rising interest in finding ways around the dollar. Thank you. Quick question from our audience online. Uh, other than AI, do you see any other technological innovations that could disrupt the economy in the year or years ahead? Other than AI, yeah. um, I guess the one that I would point to is a breakout innovation on the clean energy and renewable energy side. Right. Um, you know, we've already had a lot of innovations on that front. It's been quite remarkable. Um, we already have all the technology we need technically to get us to net zero, if only we deploy it. Um, but, you know, there's an awful lot of research going on right now into fission, fusion, um, clean aviation fuel, all of those things. And if one of those, or batteries, batteries, batteries right now are the holy grail above all else. And if somebody has a massive breakthrough in batteries, um, in a way that would mean either we could really break our dependence on fossil fuels much faster than we expected, or bring down the cost of energy dramatically, that would actually have quite a big impact, a very positive impact on how, um, how the world's developing. It's worth remembering that the IEA reckons there's going to be $1.8 trillion worth of renewable energy investment this year. That's a four to five-fold increase in where we were three years ago. And it's more than is being invested in fossil fuels, thank God. Um, and you have that much money being thrown at a problem. It's hard not to think that there's going to be some, not be some kind of breakthrough in the coming years. I don't want to stress that because there's a bunch of Silicon Valley bros who hope for a magic wand emanating from a com com company you know, that they own, you know, who will somehow get us out of having to make sacrifices or hard choices. And there is that magical thinking that happens, particularly on the West Coast. But I do think that would be the other big tech breakthrough that could happen. Thank you. Um, to the audience again. Uh, right, gentlemen at the back in the corner, if we could. And uh, yes, very persistent person at the back there, woman at the back, uh, right at the <laughs> you back. You get prizes again. for looking keen. Yes, you do. Well done for waving. So in it's the corner like there, sir, if you I'm, would, and the woman later. Thank first you. of all, you, re you referenced earlier on the um, um, market concerns about government get debt default. Do you think a first world government debt default is likely? Uh, and secondly, uh, do you think um, central banks and governments in general want to reduce their debt piles? And if so, is inflation the only option they have? Thank you very much. And please. Okay, thank you for sharing today. I'm curious about China. Uh, as you mentioned for China for more than one time in your speech. So I'm curious, what's your outlook for China economic growth for the rest of the year and the coming 2024? Thank you very much. Wow, small questions. Yeah. Um, on the issue of debt, um, is, a is a default um, likely in the medium to long term? Absolutely yes, but it depends on your definition of default because there, you know, there are several ways you can default. You can simply not pay your loans back in an overt default, or you can default in your bonds as countries like Argentina do every five minutes. Um, you know, do I think that's gonna happen in the US anytime soon? unless we have you know, more debt crises with the Republican Party and Democrats failing to agree on debt ceilings and stuff like that, probably not. Um, but you'd also default by not paying your pension promises or downgrading them. That is extremely likely, if not almost certain. You can also default by essentially indirectly having, if not inflation, then having something which um, economists call financial rep repression. 
And for those of you who don't know what financial repression is I, and care about this stuff, I'd say go out immediately and look up um, you know, it on the internet. And in particular, look up some of the papers that came out in 2008 um, on this. Um, because what financial repression is, is a situation where essentially governments engineer a rate of interest that's just below the prevailing market rate on bonds. And essentially what that means is you have slightly negative real rates over a number of years. And if you maintain that situation for a long time, what it means is essentially debt will fall because taxpayers or anyone owning the bond is paying a small subsidy each year to the government in a way that's so subtle and hard to understand that no one, no one really notices or complains about. And that was absolutely central to how Britain got out of its debts post-World War II. People think somehow we magically grew baloney. Half of the debt reduction was due to a financial repression. And the beauty of financial repression is that no one understands it. So if you're Rishi Sunak or the next government, you know, it's a wonderful tool to use um, because you carry it on very stealthily for a long time. Um, and that's another kind of quasi-default, if you like. Um, the downside of financial repression, or the difficulties with it right now, is that they could do it after World War II, and they did it, did it in America as well, because central banks controlled the main metrics of financial markets, and they had, for the most part, export controls on the currency. You don't have that today, and you have the internet, so it could actually be a lot harder to implement, but I think that's probably the future in some form. Um, in terms of the China question, um, you know, China's had an economic miracle for two or three decades. Um, almost impossible to see how that will be sustained, partly because of demographics, partly because of the debt mountain and the rising financial strains in the system, which look unbelievably Japanese to me. And in fact, this, I lived in Japan in the 1990s during their debt crisis. Um, and my first book was about Japan and about how they went so badly wrong. Um, and after the book was published, um, I was then told six months later that it, it had become a bestseller in China, which was a surprise because I'd never actually sold the rights to China. Um, but so, <laughs> true story. True story. Someone had pirated it and published it, and it had become a bestseller, apparently, which is, you know, nice. But I had a stream of, stream of um, Chinese officials coming to see me later on and um, asking me how they could avoid the trap of Japan. And they were acutely aware of the similarities of the two. And I think they're just playing out right now in a very similar kind of way. Um, and so demographics are problematic. The debt is problematic, very problematic. If they slip into deflation, it will get much worse. They haven't yet. And also the other problem is that so much of their growth has been powered by exports. And if we are heading towards a more fragmented world, that's gonna be harder. However, having said all that, I still stand in awe of the degree to which the Chinese government has managed to dance their way around all kinds of problems to date extraordinarily well. And I also stand in awe with their ability to have strategic medium to long-term planning in a way that's so conspicuously and lamentably absent in the UK or the US. Thank you very much. We have five minutes left. So I'm going to take two questions because one from the lady Sorry, I'll there, be quicker. if I could, one from the lady there and one from the gentleman there, if I may. Thank you very much indeed. Yes. Thank you. First over here, madam. Thank you. You mentioned demographics and I'm wondering um, 
what your views are on the changes that we've seen in terms of the way we work as well as labor force participation and uh, labor force oh, yeah. participation, the way we work in terms of, of moving to remote and hybrid, um, as well as um, uh, the aging workforce. How big a factor are those relative to the other factors you've talked about in terms of the impact on, on local and global economies? Thank you, Madam. And sir, well, I, I've lost you. There you are, sir. Forgive me. Um, thank you. Um, given that, uh, given uh, uh, other things being equal, a larger economy will generate more carbon than a smaller economy. Is it true that from a narrow climate change point of view, it would be better if the world economy grew at 2% rather than 3%? Thank you very um, much. In a basic mathematical way, given current technology, absolutely yes. And during COVID, guess what? You know, carbon emissions for the first time for a very long time actually slowed down. Um, so yes, obviously. Um, from the point of view of millions of people's lives, if you actually were to do a poll and ask them, they'd say almost certainly not. Um, and, you know, if if we don't have more technological breakthroughs and more decarbonisation technology, then that's going to become an increasingly real debate going forward. But we're not there right now, I don't think. But yes, I do hear you on that one. Um, in terms of, sorry, what was the other one? The um, Demographics. Demographics. Oh, yeah, I find this fascinating because this is the area where I think that, you know, I've deliberately not given you a sort of evangelical reason as to why you should all become anthropologists, but I do happen to believe that. Um, or more to the point, I believe if any of you have kids who want to become anthropologists instead of accountants, don't despair because they can get jobs. Um, demographics is one area where looking beyond the raw numbers is absolutely critical and looking at culture and how that impacts how economies develop. Because What's happened in the last 50 years in the West is we've become accustomed to the idea that actually, you know, our working life is from, you know, 18 to 65, and then it stops, and we retire. We've become accustomed to the idea that we work nine to five, and we work in something called an office that's separate from the home. And that's become totally normalized for anyone who grew up in that world. And it's become baked into a lot of the way that economic models were in the past. Now, one obvious problem with that is that it's never been like the case entirely. We've always had the gray economy, the black economy. We've always had people doing unpaid work like homework or housework that wasn't included, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but the other issue is actually for 99.9% .9 of humanity, um, you know, if you look back at human history, that was a really weird way to look at the world. What's fascinating is that COVID suddenly tossed us back into the way that most of humanity looks at the world. And we all became the 21st equivalent of peasant farmers in the sense that we all started working at home and the boundaries between home and work blurred and the boundaries between our family and our work colleagues really blurred because all our kids joined our Zoom calls. Um, and our sense of when we work changed because actually we stopped working nine to five if we'd ever done that. I mean, any single mother's always known nine to five was a complete joke. Um, we were always working at, you know, you'd always have to tell who's a single mother by getting the emails at two o'clock in the morning. Um, but, you know, the whole concept of the workday and our boundaries shifted and became incredibly flexible. And increasingly, the idea of retiring at 65 is breaking down as well. And all of that really matters for any economic projections going forward. 
Um, and to understand that, you just have to look like a, a country like Japan, which has basically seen an explosive increase in female labor force participation in the last 15, 20 years in a way that was unimaginable when I was in Japan, when it was taken for granted that Japanese women would ever work en masse. Um, and so one of the reasons why Japan has managed to keep growing in spite of its absolutely appalling demographics is because more women are entering the workforce. To my mind, the really interesting question going forward, which matters for China, is what happens next? Because they can't grow the female workforce that much more. Maybe they can raise the um, retirement age. Um, but the question to my mind that's really interesting is, will the massive cultural barrier towards immigration drop in Japan because of that? Or will they adopt robots massively to compensate instead? Um, my betting is on the latter because Japan is the only country I know of where people love automation and robots. And even the unions like them. Um, and they like them because of the dirty secret that is at the moment, I think many Japanese prefer a robot to an immigrant. Um, to be honest, you know, I, I mean, you know, that's, that's traditionally been, but, you know, and, um, you know, Japan had Astro Boy, which was this comic skit that mattered enormously 20, 30 years ago, which put a very positive image of robots, whereas in the UK we had, you know, 2001 AD instead. Um, and, you know, we had Doctor Who and Daleks, you know, so we're all, we're all programmed to fear robots. In Japan, they're all raised to love them because it's Astro Boy. Um, but that's where the cultural factors start to really play into concepts of productivity and economies going forward. Um, and why I think, you know, anthropology and economics needs to be blended. Thank you very much. We have to leave it there. And I'm very sorry uh, if I didn't ask uh, your, your... And by the way, I should say, by the way, I, if the Japanese would prefer a robot to an immigrant, I should stress, by the way, that they're certainly not alone in that. If you look at the tenor of the debate in the UK or the US from parts of the political spectrum, many of them would prefer a robot to an immigrant as well, and that's wrong. For a later debate, thank you. Um, again, apologies if I, you didn't get to ask your question. Thank you very much to those who did, and thank you for coming here this evening or for watching online. Um, enormous thanks to Gillian when I was asked to moderate this. It's been an absolute joy. It really has uh, been. Thank you. It's fantastic. Um, clear and crisp and sometimes provocative uh, and every moderator's dream quite quick with your answers. And finally, thanks to our sponsors, Ytree, uh, without whom this evening simply wouldn't have happened. It's been an absolute joy to moderate and a joy to have you all here. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you. It was really good. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Intelligence Squared. This episode was produced by Connor Boyle and Faye Adabita and edited by Tom Hall. If you want to keep up with everything going on at Intelligence Squared, do sign up to the newsletter head over to intelligencework.com to get the heads up on all of our live events like the one you've just heard with Gillian Tett. And members can also peruse over 20 years of our back catalogue, featuring some of the world's great minds. That's all over at intelligencesquared.com.